0: This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Hey, Chad, how are you? Good, thanks. Thanks for your willingness to do this again.
1: Oh, no problem.
0: Make sure to keep listening after the program to find out how to receive a free MP3 download from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm Jonathan Master, Dean of the School of Divinity at Cairn University and host of Theology on the Go, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. On our last episode, we discussed sexuality and identity with Rosaria Butterfield. Today, we're continuing along those same lines with a discussion of sexuality and our public lives. My guest today is Chad Vegas. Pastor Vegas serves Sovereign Grace Church in Bakersfield, California, and he recently encountered some significant challenges in trying to live and serve as a Christian amidst the rapidly changing environment of the Bakersfield School Board, which he served as chair. So, Chad, thank you for joining us today. Oh, I'm, I'm glad to be on here. Thank you. Now, I learned about your story from our mutual friend, Carl Truman, and I subsequently saw it reported on in other places. And I'm wondering just here at the outset, if you could briefly summarize what happened to you on the Bakersfield school board, and because I'm confident your summary is going to be much better than, than my own, just to set the stage here.
1: Yeah. So um, just to kind of give a little bit of background, in 2013, California passed a law um, which required that um, bathroom facilities, shower facilities, um, athletic facilities, um, athletic teams, etc., uh, would, would recognize the transgender agenda, essentially saying that um, if you're a boy who identifies as a girl, uh, then, then you shall be treated as such, just like any other biological female would be treated, on our campuses in all public schools in California. And that includes uh, the use of gender pronouns. So teachers would be required to identify you by the gender pronoun of your choice. Um, further, uh, it includes the fact that um, you, uh, of gender fluidity, which means you, you that can change from day to day. You could feel that you're a, a male one day or a female the next. Um, and so that, that began a discussion with our board as to whether or not we're going to adopt and, and, and really obey that law. And in May of 2016, this year, the board chose to adopt and obey that law. I voted against that. Actually, I think it's troubling on a number of levels and that kind of exploded into this, this big story.
0: So if, if we were to look at it from the other side, and, and I know you've done this and, and you interacted a lot with those on the other side, what key ideas did the proponents of, of the bill um, feel compelled to defend? In other words, in other words, what did they see as being at stake? You know,
1: for them, uh, there's a lot at stake. I mean, we had lots and lots of transgender folks um, flood our boardrooms, people in the LGBTQ, Uh, movement in general, flood our boardroom, as well as parents. I mean, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of parents who don't want this to happen in our schools, uh, flood our boardroom. And and, uh, as we listen to the debate, the debate from the transgender side, uh, this comes down to the fact that they believe that this is who they are, that that this is an immutable characteristic. This is their identity. And for anybody to challenge that identity um, is to be a bigot. Um, so there is no way for parents on the other side to say, we want you to respect our view because to respect their view is to respect in and these people's minds to respect bigotry. There was quite the, if you will, um, uproar when any, anytime anybody would address, um, their lifestyle, um, and say that that ought not to be brought into the schools. So that's what they think is on the line, just like a black person's skin color. Um, to deny them access to something because of their skin color, they would see the same thing with regard to their gender identity.
0: Yeah, and there's a there's a fluidity to it too. I mean, on the one hand, the language of immutable identity is sometimes employed, but um, I think in, in in reading some of the things that that you've um, expressed, it's there's also a sense in which it can it can shift. So unlike skin color, this is some, I have the right to always identify my gender you know, in a, in a changing way, if, if, if I'd like to.
1: That's, that's right, and that's just the radical kind of autonomy um, that that we live in, I think, in the United States at this point, is that I can shift that whenever I want. Because at the end of the day, what really matters is what I want to be identified as. And there, there is no external authority to tell me otherwise. Not even my own body can tell me otherwise.
0: Yeah, that, that's a great point. I mean, it really is sort of a, a desire to escape from the body entirely um, and and to be able to uh, throw that off in some way. Yeah. Now, I, I want to move on. In, in the letter that you wrote to your congregation, which was a very good, very powerful letter, sort of responding to all that had happened and to your decision to step down ultimately from the school board, you said this, government education has been hijacked as a cause for the indoctrination of your children in nihilism, hedonism, and atheism. In other words, you, you see this as a very broad and far-reaching issue. It's not just um, the particular arguments that uh, are being manifested about uh, gender and sexuality. You're seeing this as a much, much bigger project and a much bigger issue. So as you thought and argued through this, were there particular... Biblical or theological ideas that came to the forefront? How, how do you think Christians should engage the presenting arguments in light of the fact that these other big things are, are, are happening?
1: You know, it's interesting because this has been a long transformation in my, in my own thought. I, I was a high school teacher for five years in the 90s at a public high school, and then I've served on a public school board for the last 12 years Um, And I've gone through a lot in doing so. I mean, a year into being a board member, um, I was named in a lawsuit by the ACLU, went through depositions. That was the first time I ever had a clue that this kind of issue was coming. Um, When in a deposition, the ACLU attorneys asked me if we would let boys use the women's restrooms, which um, I kind of laughed at at the time, but they looked at me and told me it will be law. That was in 2005 or so. It will be law, and, and it turns out that it is now law. Um, and I've watched this kind of study, um, if you will, bearing a fruit um, in a sexual revolution in our schools in California, and, and it's just been through that time that I've come to realize that that, that isn't the root of it. That The root of it is much, much deeper. The root of it um, goes back to really, to, to a great degree, what it means to, um, to have public schools or government education in the first place, which is to have education that is not, un, uh, is not um, if you will, or the acquiring of knowledge, not in the fear of the Lord, but the acquiring of knowledge um, in a state in which you deny that there is a God, that, that there is, uh, that he is Lord, that he does um, order things a particular way, um, that we do have to listen to him. There's a complete denial of that. I actually read an article by A. A. Hodge from 1890 in which he argues that public education will be the greatest engine of atheism the world has ever known. Um, it, I also read chapter one of—well, uh, I read the whole book, but chapter one of uh, Machen's Christian Liberalism. He comes after the same idea that state schools are going to turn children into commodities. They're going to take education away from parents, um, and 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 he's greatly concerned about that in fact ref 21 just had a a blog post on it and so i began to think more and more about what it is that we're doing um, as an education system and we're essentially uh, in public education teaching that there is no god that you you live for your own pleasure there is no meaning um and you acquire knowledge for the purpose of being a better commodity to sell the marketplace Um, and, and so that's giving fruit to, if you're just, if there's no meaning and there's no God and you're pursuing your own happiness, then do whatever you want that makes you happy and no one has a right to stand in your way. And so this sexual revolution in my mind is just the fruit of all of that.
0: So, so it sounds to me, Chad, like one of the things that you're, that has been impressed upon you is the way in which we need to view education and, and view, um, our children and how we nurture them. I know that many pastors and parents are listening to this interview and I'm wondering, do, do you think that's the, the major uh, takeaway here? What types of things should they emphasize in their preaching and training or, or really should it just be uh, them hearing this and saying, I, I, I um, you know, I can't, I can't trust public education. I mean, how would you, how would you sort of frame the takeaways of this?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's a couple of takeaways. One um, I think I think the the primary takeaway is that the church and the family need to reclaim their place in discipling and educating children. Uh, they need to understand that we are given the task um, of raising our children the fear and admonition of the Lord. That we need to be able to point our children to the fact that the the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And that we ought not to walk in the counsel of the wicked, but ought to meditate on God's law day and night and. I think that that can't be divorced from academic subjects as neatly as, as we've tended to divorce it. We can't turn our children over to the state for their education. Um, I think that the church needs to, therefore, train parents in how to catechize their kids, how to teach them the word, um, how to help them think biblically about life. I think those kinds of things uh, would be important for the church to do. Parents, um, need to begin to make decisions about education. And I, w- I would say this, um, I'm not suggesting that parents are in sin if they put their children in the public school. I am suggesting that they need to be very realistic about what that means. So as parents, they, they really need to understand that their children are going to be discipled in secular atheism, in a kind of nihilism, a kind of meaninglessness to life, um, a kind of hedonism, pursue your own pleasure, um, pursue whatever you want, your own autonomy, love yourself. This is the the kind of message or the religion of the public schools, which means those parents are gonna have to be diligent to counteract that message, to help their children understand that that those things are not true. Um, I think that's a difficult battle. I would encourage parents rather to really consider making sacrifices to find a different way to educate their children than by the means of the state. But if they don't have another option, then I would encourage them to to be realistic about what's happening there and and to to counter that when they come home, which is a lot of work. But I'm sure there are faithful parents who will do it. Um, so those would be the major takeaways for me.
0: Did this expose in your mind areas of weakness in our own um, preaching and training? So um, for for even for pastors or parents who are taking. Uh, what you've just said very seriously. Does this expose ways in which maybe we haven't been particularly clear in light of the presenting um, issues? Have we not been clear enough about biblical anthropology or or sexuality or marriage or identity? I mean, what what did you see as the constellation of issues in play there?
1: Yeah. um, I I think that The church has tended to respond to the sexuality, and and by the church, I mean those I know. I don't know what everybody in the church is doing, but what I've seen is there tends to be a response to the sexuality of our culture, the sexual revolution, by saying, well, here's what good biblical sex is, here's what marriage is, Um, and and I think those things are important. I don't think they're wrong, but I don't think we're going far enough back in this discussion. Um, Back to to what is a human being, that we're image bearers of God, that we're created for his glory, that we're to find our joy in him, that he is the one who determines really who we are and why we're here. And um, and those things are really external to us. There is an external authority um, who speaks into all this. He's created it all. He sustains it all. He's given us his word. And I think we have uh, really... Uh, failed in, in doing that well enough. Um, at least I've seen that in my own life and ministry. I've seen that among some pastors that, who, or whom I personally know, um, that, that we haven't really marshaled enough um, of our effort toward coming back to what are the implications of the first question of the Westminster Catechism? You know, what's the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy him forever? What are the implications of that for all of life? They're they're massive, and I'm not sure that we press into that as much as we ought to.
0: Yeah, it strikes me. A lot of times we're taking um, the assumptions and the questions from the culture and then trying to give them biblical answers, but uh, I, I really appreciate what you're saying, that we have to be asking the right questions and, and framing the whole discussion in a biblical way from from the outset. Yeah, now, uh, last question, Chad. Do you have any uh, resources you'd recommend for those who want to think this through more clearly, either some of the big picture things you've been talking about, about education or or uh, humanity and the nature of humanity, or even more narrowly, the question of sexuality and gender? Any any resources that you found particularly helpful?
1: Uh, yeah, I think that um, both of the books by Rosario Butterfield, the uh, book Openness Unhindered, and the book Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, those are both worth reading, uh, particularly in understanding uh, a, a myriad of issues related to the what's happening in the sexual revolution and, and how Christians ought to respond to that. Um, I think anything that Carl Truman is writing at First Things, um, his series of lectures he gave at Reformed Theological Seminary um, in their chapel, those are worth listening to um, or watching. I, I would also argue that, you know, going back to things like um, Christianity and liberalism by Machin, you know, I, I read a book as well by Voss and Berkhoff, um on education. I forget what it's called, but they put together a series of papers that, that Gerhardus Voss and, and Louis Berkoff put together on, on education that's worth reading. A. A. Hodges' short essay um, on public education, which I think is the engine of atheism or something like that, that's also worth reading.
0: Those are great recommendations, and we'll try to uh, provide links for those up on the placefortruth.org website. Chad, thanks so much for your time. I really do appreciate it, and uh, thanks for all you've done, even in the past months, in bringing these issues to light.
1: It's been a privilege to serve the Lord in this way, and thank you, Jonathan, for having me on.
0: You've been listening to Theology on the Go a podcast of placefortruth.org. Place for Truth wishes to be thoughtful and accessible and is based on the conviction that the gains of the Protestant Reformation retain their potency and ought to be maintained for the health of Christ's church. Just for listening, we'd like to equip you with free resources. Visit placefortruth.org to find a link to those resources. And listen next time to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.